Welcome to the Practice Brave Podcast. I am the host, Brianna Battles, founder of Pregnancy and Postpartum Athleticism and CEO of Everyday Battles. I'm a career strength and conditioning coach, entrepreneur, mom of two wild little boys, and a lifelong athlete. I believe that athleticism does not end when motherhood begins, and this podcast is dedicated to coaching you by providing meaningful conversations, insights, and interview topics related to fitness, mindset, parenting, and of course, all the nuances of pregnancy and postpartum. From expert interviews to engaging conversations and reflections, this podcast is your trustworthy, relatable resource for learning how to practice brave through every season in your life. Hey everyone, today I'm here with my friend and colleague, Munera Hudani, and we are going to be talking about all things diastasis. Now, you might be familiar with with Munira because she was on the Practice Brave podcast and it's one of the most downloaded episodes, but she's also been in the coaching certification throughout the last five or six years. And I'm really excited that she is here to provide an interview for the new coach certification, but also we're going to put this on the podcast. So if you're listening here, just know that this interview is for the coaching certification. So if we're talking at a little bit of a higher level, You'll learn more if you enroll in the coach certification, pregnancy and postpartum athleticism. So Manera is a pelvic health physiotherapist in Canada, and she specializes in diastasis recti. She is brilliant. And what I love so much about her is she has taken a lot of complicated and nuanced like messaging and information around diastasis and made it so much more simple for us to understand from practitioners to coaches to your everyday mom who's trying to understand her body and the changes to her abdominal wall. So Manera, thank you so much for being here. Why, thank you for having me. It is such a pleasure to be here. And I'm so delighted to be able to talk to you about diastasis and maybe go over some of the newer research findings and newer ideas that are out there now since the last talk that we had. Absolutely. And Munera is three months postpartum and she's giving us her time today to, again, provide some really great content for this interview. And so I just want to thank you for being in the trenches of postpartum, but still being willing to share your time with us. Yeah. I'm trying to keep my brain alive still. <laughs> yeah. Well, today's conversation will certainly help with that. Okay. So give us a little bit of background on your work and how you started working in the world of diastasis. Yeah, absolutely. So I am a pelvic floor physiotherapist, as you have stated. And I began my career as a physiotherapist in 2009. And for the maybe the past 10 years or so, maybe a little bit more, most of my career essentially has actually been in pelvic health. And most of those 10 years have been focused on prenatal and postnatal care. So really, in my career, it has primarily been a career of pelvic health, pelvic floor health pre and postnatal care. And so naturally, I've been seeing quite a few people in my practice. I had a full caseload when I was back in Toronto of working with individuals who were pregnant, as well as following up with them postpartum. Initially, when I started with uh, pelvic health, it was diastasis that kind of grabbed my attention. And I'm I'm not sure why it really spoke to me, but it was something that I was super interested in. And back then, aka 10, 9, 10 years ago, there wasn't too much information on the topic. And I was fairly new as well. So I wasn't sure if it was just that I didn't know 
this what I needed to know or that there wasn't a lot out there to begin with and it actually turned out to be the latter mm-hmm. so I try to learn as much as I could in that process I ended up teaching courses on it as well but back then the way we were conceptualizing diastasis was also very different to what I was thinking was actually happening when I was working with people individually so there was a little bit of a mismatch sort of some things were contradictory what I was seeing versus what I was potentially teaching and that didn't really settle set well with me and so I set out to learn more and I kind of just went out on my own and learned as much as I could in my own way diving into research and disseminating it in my own way mm-hmm. rather than it just being told to me and then I was able to realize actually a lot of the things that I'm doing with my clients and a lot of the things that I'm teaching were in a in fact holding people back and I realized actually through that process that we actually need a whole overhaul of what diastasis means what it is what we are supposed to do how we can help people and as soon as I had that realization I knew that I wasn't the only one and I set out on a mission to kind of help other practitioners to help them understand it better so I'm pretty much still in this mission living it out in being able to share what I've learned through research and through my clinical practice and putting them together and trying to make diastasis easier to understand so that we can be more effective in helping people with it so we can get them to their goals faster and so that they can understand it better as well. So that's kind of my backstory. And then now that I am 12 weeks postpartum, it's very interesting how I now have that sort of in-person experience of what it felt like to be pregnant and the mental and emotional aspects of a body that's changing, that feels foreign, that doesn't do or feel like it used to. And kind of having that experience postpartum and prenatally added to the clinical expertise and then the theoretical stuff that I know about just from research kind of putting them all together. It's just sort of made me even more alive in being able to share what I can about this topic. So very grateful to be here. Um, And I know there's a huge interest in diastasis. So really happy to talk about it. It really is. I mean, we've seen such a huge pendulum swing. Like you mentioned, when you were first starting out, there was, it's not that you weren't like knowledgeable. It's just, there wasn't a lot of information on diastasis and the information that was was outdated for even back then, which was, like you said, about 10 years ago. And that's when I kind of came into this realm and also was like, none of this makes sense. That's not how any other muscle or injury or tissue in the body works. Like, why are we telling people to just push their abs together or don't do this or only do that? Like, it was just, I just remember feeling so confused because it went against all of the common sense of like basic exercise physiology and strength conditioning. It went against all of it. I'm like, why is this so different? But again, the only thing I could find was like just shamey or I don't know, things that just like were not relatable, especially for anyone who considers himself an athlete, you know, who wants to do more than just like rehab exercises, you know, like none of that resonated. So we've really come a long way from that to now an obsession and maybe even a over-concern of diastasis and people freaking out when they see toning or somebody doing an exercise and this is bad and like trying to label it. So we've really seen that pendulum swing. And I know that 
our collective work is always in that messy middle in the gray area of a lot of this yeah. stuff. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So can you explain to us what is a diastasis? What definition do you like using? <laughs> well, okay. So the definition is pretty standard and yet it's also complicated. Standard and complicated. Standard meaning if you look at the literal meaning of diastasis rectus abdominis, literally it translates to there is a space between the two rectus abdominis muscles. So there's a standard version of it. The complicated aspect of this definition is that there actually is no consensus amongst researchers, amongst any of the literature. So the places that we are going to look for information and for answers, there is no consensus there regarding what it constitutes an actual diastasis. So we have some figures and values that we can kind of generally use. And in those general terms, we can state that diastasis typically, at least up until recently, has been considered in a space in between the rectus muscles of about two centimeters or more around the level of the belly button. So that's kind of what, generally speaking, people are using as a definition of diastasis. But again, there's no consensus around that because how it's being measured and where it's being measured is different from person to person or study to study. But in 2019, the I believe it was the German Hernia Society, they came up with a classification which puts diastasis into categories. So less than three centimeters equals mild, three mm. to five centimeters equals moderate, more than five equals severe. So this is kind of a sort of subcategorized diastasis definition. And yet we also have something that came out even more recently, like a 2022 study where they looked at individuals who are going through going for a CT scan for kidney stones. And they had, I believe, over 300 participants for the general population and actually found. So this includes men and women and includes individuals from 18 to 60 something. So for general population, we're talking about the fact that diastasis, actually a normal amount of space can actually be up to 3.4 centimeters. So that's more than the 2.2. 3.4 is what's considered normal in this case, which means possibly diastasis is anything more than that. So like I said, it's kind of complicated and an increase in, I would say, 3.4 makes a bit more sense for what an actual diastasis means. But what does it mean to the person when we use yeah. when we use this linear elbow or the width of it to label someone where we actually run into a lot of issues with that definition because we know and you know very well with all the work that you do that it's not the only thing the linear alba isn't the only thing that is stretched out in pregnancy so right. there's so much else happening in the abdominal wall we've got the rectus abdominis muscle being stretched vertically, ventrally, like out in front. Also, it's angled differently this way and it becomes thinner and wider. And then we've got the sort of the thoracic or the rib cage becoming wider as well. The diameter has increased. We have changes to the lateral muscles. We have changes to so many things in the abdominal wall 
in pregnancy that don't necessarily just automatically resolve postpartum. The linea alba is one of them. And yet the linea alba is something that we've sort of focused on and said, okay, this is different from pregnancy to postpartum or from when you're not pregnant to when you're pregnant. So we should be measuring that. But like I said, there's a whole bunch of other things that are also different that we're not looking at. And I think that'll come into, that'll be very important maybe in, in later parts of this conversation. So, Right, absolutely. And I think it is fascinating that there is this hyper-focus on diastasis now and that hyper-focus on, I mean, you get the DMs that I do, which is like women that are super freaked out by like a, they say like a one finger or two finger separation. And I think it's because they've been told that that's bad or wrong or that there shouldn't be any separation, but really to try to translate everything, it's like there is a range of normal and your abs were separated before you had a baby. But now there's this like hyper fixation on just how much separated they are now. And I do like that there is that labeling system and that research that came out. I think you said the hernia. What what was that again? Just so we German hernia society. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Um, (laughs) To keep up with, don't worry. (laughs) Right. But I do think it's helpful to kind of have that as a frame of reference. As much as we don't label anybody, it does help to have that frame of reference for people that are convinced that a two centimeter diastasis is bad. It's like, well, actually that's like really mild or like, you know, more a moderate range or validation if it is large. And it's like, okay, like, no, this is considered pretty significant. So the people that are considering surgery maybe feel like they have a little bit more validation in that process. And again, this is something that we'll talk about later, but I do really like that we have these ranges that we can work on as far as getting better understanding of our bodies or of our clients' bodies or of making decisions for what our body actually needs at any given point in time. Yes, absolutely. So if that connective tissue, the linea alba, that spreads throughout pregnancy to accommodate the growth of the baby, that tissue does not tear unless there's a hernia, correct? Yep, correct. You know, that's a very common question we get. People think that their abs are ripping apart, but it's not the abs, it's that connective tissue. Yes, going through a natural phenomenon required for pregnancy. I love that we talk about this now. The language that you use, that I've used in this course, is it's an adaptation. This is an expected adaptation that our body goes through. That's why we cannot prevent, you know, diastasis during pregnancy, because this is what our body has to do in everybody's diastasis and how much growth and stress goes to the midline. That's going to be very much at an individual level. Absolutely. Yeah. So in pregnancy, what are some things that you think are helpful to help manage the severity of diastasis, at least in the ways we may have control of? So in pregnancy, we have ideas on what we can do. And we don't have the sort of substantiated research behind it. However, we have ideas that sort of theoretically make sense and sort of there are things that we know are going to be beneficial regardless of if someone has a diastasis or not. And so when we do those things, we're kind of helping the person overall, their overall well-being. And these are things like participating in some kind of exercise program mm-hmm. because we know that exercise in general can help facilitate a, again a sense of well-being, but also the effect on mood and emotional and mental health as well. And that plays a role 
in diastasis, because when we're talking sort of granular at the tissue level, what happens to the tissues is also directly impacted by the cellular environment that those tissues are kind of within. And so whenever we are doing things that promote well-being, reduction in stress, and a reduction in inflammation and that sort of state, it actually can be very beneficial to the tissues as well, including the ones that are stretching in pregnancy. That also is something to be, there's also something to be said about nutrition in there as well. So providing the building blocks of what tissues need in order for them to continue to grow and potentially thin out, but also support them in that process. So there's nutrition that we need to look at as well. And so on the opposite end of that spectrum, things that require, well, things that are more stressful, so adverse events that happen during pregnancy, or again, food that tends to be more inflammatory, or a lifestyle that doesn't really allow for great quality of sleep. So again, we're talking kind of overall overarching ideas to help the person who is pregnant. And all of these things can directly as well as indirectly help the diastasis. And these are the same principles for postpartum as well. Now, if we get a little bit more specific, we want to keep the abdominal wall strong. We want to participate in exercises that keep the muscles strong because we know that those are the muscles that are being stretched. And so specifically like the rectus abdominis muscle, it is being stretched to 115% of its previous length. So that muscle becomes thinner and wider and stretched and elongated, and it doesn't necessarily just kind of come back to its own afterwards. So strengthening of muscles of the abdominal wall, including some rotation, including some transverse abdominus work, including pelvic floor work. So kind of working the whole core in pregnancy is beneficial for anyone that is hoping to maintain as much as they can the status of their abdominal wall, given the fact that things are going to stretch. Now, can we say that if you do this, you're not going to have a diastasis? No. That if you do these certain, we can't even say that if you do these certain intra-abdominal pressure management strategies and techniques, that every single person who does them is also therefore not going to have lingering laxity afterwards. We can't say that because we have to consider that genetics play a huge role in what actually happens. But we do, knowing that genetics plays a role, we still have to sort of be mindful of the fact that diastasis is part of, so diastasis rectus abdominis, therefore the space between the rectus abdominis, it occurs within the abdominal wall. And and part of the function of the abdominal wall is intra-abdominal pressure management. So we want to be aware of what we're doing. And if we're seeing a lot of excessive doming in our movements prenatally, it is possible that these things could lead to more strain and pressure on the tissue. So if we can minimize how often we see that, it's not to say that you have to roll over onto your side to get yourself up because it's just not realistic to ask someone to do that. Naturally, even if we're just trying to get out from being reclined, we are going to sit up just without thinking about it. And we do want to keep things sort of natural. But if we can just be mindful 
on some of the occasions of when we're seeing a lot of doming and just kind of here and there minimize that because it could be more about the accumulation of pressure on the tissues over time, not so much the individual bouts of pressure exactly. that we experience day to day. Yeah, that's what we talk about in this course is like, it's just some of our habits, right? And like, that's so many things in life, but especially with like everyone being concerned about coding and doming, it really is, it's the sum of our lifestyle and our exercise choices and how much consistently it's being like coding versus the occasional getting out of bed or rolling over. It's doing the 21-15-9 of toes to bar when you're 30 weeks pregnant, where you're like, you know, that's a lot of volume. And that's a really hard, just movement pattern in general, even with the best pressure management strategy, you're not going to avoid coning there. Like you just can't, but exactly. so it's making like really practical training choices and programming design by coaches to know like, if she's at this point in pregnancy, it's not that she has an inability to perform this movement. It's just what's, what's like the real point of it. It's the sum yeah. of habits over time. What are we reinforcing? And I think that has to be a huge part of the conversation for athletes from a self-recognition standpoint and then for coaches and practitioners when trying to give practical feedback. It's not freaking out about moving or sitting up out of bed. It's the sum of what we're doing in our training environments. Yes. Yeah. And if I can just even take that one step further and kind of tie it back into just where I started off with the what can we do, it's the habits that involve training and then also just all those lifestyle habits, like again, the sleep, the nutrition, the stress management. So your overall quality of life is determined by your habits and your habits also kind of play into what happens in the abdominal wall too. So it kind of is going, it goes both ways. And yes, I think if we really want to be holistic, we have to address those habits for sure. Absolutely. And then I love that you talked about at a cellular level, just what it means to really be healthy. Because I think that when breathing like this, or, you know, we have the PNP, the PNP principles, like pressure, tension, movement, breathing, like all these different considerations that influence core and pelvic health, right? But like, if we're not acknowledging the greater quality of life and greater health considerations, and we're kind of missing the picture, like we can, we have these concepts to go off of, but also how are we treating our bodies in the, the more holistic ways? Yes, absolutely. I love that you talked about that. And we do talk about that in another interview, the nutrition one in this course. Okay. And then it's also on the podcast as well, Laura Ligos. So you guys, if you're listening, make sure you listen to that too, talking about nutrition during pregnancy and postpartum to assist in healing and that tissue health. It was a really oh, great. So talk to me a little bit about the physiology and kind of like the mechanics. So like, how does it all work together? We talk about diaphragmatic breathing, but how does like an inhale, everything lengthens, exhale, we're trying to like connect pelvic floor and TA. What does that do for diastasis? I think that gets really confusing for people. How is breathe differently, pressure management going to help my diastasis? Yeah, so I can totally appreciate why this is confusing and and how people may not understand how it, it actually ties into diastasis, why there may be a link. But basically, well, if we just first take a a little step back and kind of think about what we used to do for diastasis, this is when we previously, probably before you and I were really focusing in on helping this clientele Mm -hmm. before. The primary 
mode of treatment or intervention was a splinted crunch. Mm-hmm. Splinted crunch meaning they would put some sort of scarf around their abdomen and then they would do some sort of head lift or curl up exercise, strengthening the rectus muscle. And then with the sheet or the scarf, they'd try to pull those muscles together. I did that. Right. Okay. For like a hot second. And then I was like, this is so dumb. <laughs> That's even back then, Munera. I was like, this doesn't make sense. I'm grumpy now. <laughs> no, something just doesn't seem right. No, right? <laughs> so that was primarily to focus and strengthen the rectus abdominis, okay? Mm-hmm. And, but then we we have shifted away from that. And we then primarily started working on the deep core muscles, like the diaphragm, like the pelvic floor, the transverse abdominis. And using strategies such as the one that you mentioned about inhaling and lengthening the abdominal wall and pelvic floor, exhaling and engaging and drawing in the abdominal wall. And so these are absolutely appropriate strategies for this group of muscles, the diaphragm, the pelvic floor, the transverse abdominis. In the body, we have muscles that are, you know, they have their own individual function, but we also have muscles that are kind of grouped together to fulfill a mutual function. And so when it comes to the pelvic floor diaphragm, TA, these are muscles that are known through research to have a very important role in intra-abdominal pressure management. So they are certainly what I call the first responders because they are kind of directly in contact with that pressure and able to mitigate it, manage it, navigate it, whatever term you want to use. And they're able to control that pressure. In fact, the transverse abdominus, the deepest abdominal, is a muscle that has been the most correlated with changes in intra-abdominal pressure. So it's kind of always there responding to it. And also it benefits the TA as well to have pressure going against it because it has something to work against. So it's that's the role of these muscles. And when we're talking about diastasis and the physiology behind using these muscles for diastasis. Well, diastasis, one of the principles is managing pressure. We want to make sure that the person we're working with knows how to, knows what to look out for when there is an excessive amount of pressure for that person, Mm -hmm. what they can do to manage it and strategies and tools, give them tools to work with so they can adjust what they're doing to reduce where pressure might be going or how that pressure is kind of presenting itself. So that's how it plays a role in diastasis. Diastasis and pressure management go hand in hand. This group of muscles have been shown specifically to have a a mutual role in addition to their individual roles, but a mutual collective role in intra-abdominal pressure management. And yet they don't even work by themselves because when pressure is really significant, Outer abdominal muscles, the superficial muscles like the rectus abdominis and the obliques, they are absolutely there to support the deeper core muscles in their role as pressure managers as well. So we have this entire system, core system, where one of the primary roles or functions of this system is to manage, to create pressure. So we have some stability inside of a task, but also, also to manage it. And so We went from only using rectus abdominis, strengthening it for diastasis, to really only using the deep core and shying people away from rectus abdominis 
and oblique strengthening because we don't want them to flex and rotate because it could strain the linea alba, according to that paradigm. And now there's actually been sort of a blend of the, the two paradigms together where it's kind of holistically working the whole abdominal wall, strengthening all of the core muscles, not leaving one out because they are all important. So having a little bit of an appreciation for the muscles that are directly involved, but knowing that they're all involved to some degree. And so working with all of them is quite important for diastasis. No, I love that. And I think it's really going to help the coaches connect the dots when we talk about this PAPA principle. Again, we have breathing, we have pressure, we have tension, we have position, we have movement. Being able to use all of these things, knowing that pressure is, that's the big one for diastasis. Like that's the big, that's the main player with diastasis. So if we can manipulate pressure and then we can use movement as a way to reinforce some of that pressure Mm -hmm. management, like that's how we quote heal or improve diastasis. That's how those abs approximate. And I think that's where it gets confusing is, well, how does just breathing or, you know, not doing a breath hold or something change that? And it's like, well, it's not just that. It's all of these different things working synergistically with movements that help reinforce what those muscles are doing around that tissue, around that midline. And that's why as coaches, like we have a huge opportunity to use movement as a tool at a really individual level. Like what movements do they like to do? Are they good at? Do they want to do? And like, how can we just make some of those quick little adjustments and change how they're moving? And then that has a direct benefit to their diastasis. For sure. Yeah. I know we can get so nerdy about this when you're I know. I mean, I, I'm just so many things I could say, but I'm just going to, yeah, let's just keep going. I know. I'm like, okay, we got coaches listening, we got podcasters listening, but just know, like, I mean, it's not just one mechanism at play. There are multiple mechanisms at play, but that's movement in general. Like athleticism is not this robotic thing. Athleticism is like a beautiful combination of things all coming together, different energy systems and muscle output. And it's the same when we talk about making structural improvements to our body with a diastasis. And so there's a lot of freedom there that we can explore versus only do these rehab exercises. And that's the only thing that's going to help you. Like, it's not true. Most of my athletes make the most progress with their diastasis. You can, you can share here as well. When I start loading them, when I tell them, I want you to do like moderately heavy deadlifts, but here's how I want you to perform them. This is where I want your finished position to be. This is how I want you to breathe. This is where I want you to like distribute your tension at. And then all of a sudden, oh, my abs, they're feeling different. They're sitting differently or they're not as flared or whatever it might be. So it's like, you gotta, you gotta use movement and tweak movement in a way that really respects what that diastasis needs. Right. And I guess just to say one more thing on that point, it's the fact that when we're doing, not to diminish the importance of some early level exercises and kind of what we consider rehab, but they are often not enough to kind of stimulate the tissues. Like muscles really need something to kind of wake them up, like to Mm -hmm. get them to work. And if they're not really being challenged, they're not being stimulated, then they really have no reason to change themselves. They can already handle what you're doing with them. So why do they need to change? They'll only change when we're kind of making them do things in a different way and making them do things that are harder than what they're used to. Yes. And when that's the case, then they kind of, the body kind of wakes up and has to adapt to what's happening. And so when you were talking about pressure management, 
hand in hand with pressure management is introducing more and more difficulty in the exercises because what is that going to do? Going to increase the amount of pressure within their core that they have to manage. And that pressure, as I was sort of leading to before, that pressure and the TA, they work together. And the pressure, the TA needs that pressure to kind of respond to something. And the more the pressure is there, the more it has something to respond to. So we're kind of building the tissue's capacity to handle pressure by doing more and more progressively challenging tasks. So when you're saying, well, it's only after loading that my clients are noticing changes in their where their muscles sit and how their body appears and what they're feeling. It's only after that. That makes sense because we're kind of stimulating them and waking things up and really initiating that change. Yeah. And well, they've progressively overloaded it. Like that's, you know, basic strength conditioning concept, right? We talk about this in the course, like learn, control, load, explode. And like this progression. So we start with the rehab exercises to create that connection, to create that foundation in pregnancy, maybe from a prehab perspective and postpartum, early postpartum. And then we build on that. Can they control that and integrate it into their activities of daily living, into their basic exercise routine? Okay. Now we like can load it. We can load. I mean, that's a season of that we got, there's a huge ceiling there to work with. And now add more explosive and dynamic movements once they've created this foundation of control and load. And I think that we forget that when it comes to core and pelvic health rehab, because that's been put in this box of like really conservative movement, a lot of fear around it, a lot of just like misunderstanding, but the rehab and improvement for these considerations are the same as what we would do for an orthopedic injury or just trying to help somebody get stronger over time. Someone who has no baseline of fitness and then watching them make a lot of progress to having a lot more strength and fitness and cardiac output, you know, like We just have treated this differently for so long, but the mechanisms of progress, they're very similar. Yes. The understanding of what pressure is, it it has been misunderstood. Yeah. And so we initially would believe that pressure is bad. Automatically, we would see doming and say, oh, that's bad. Mm -hmm. Or we would see some kind of pressure mismanagement. And I don't really like that term mismanagement, but we would see pressure exerting itself in certain ways, producing certain symptoms. And we would automatically label then all forms of elevated pressure as bad. Whereas as you were pointing out very clearly, pressure is needed. Mm -hmm. And so you can't have it really both ways. We either work with pressure and build the tissues capacity and the body's tolerance to pressure and help them learn by giving them strategies that they can use, help them learn these tools and tech technical and tactical tools that they can use in their exercises and movements. And then we kind of set them up for success. Whereas in, in the view of let's reduce pressure, minimize when they, when they have pressure and avoid things that elevate pressure, it's just not realistic because life requires pressure. Life means we are lifting our toddlers. We are pushing heavy carts. We are having to do heavier tasks in the day that are pressure inducing and it's better to set them up for that versus and give them some practice with that have them feel confident in practicing things in advance versus saying oh don't do anything that gives you more pressure right so or don't yeah. crunch or don't do this or all these limiting things and i mean right. it's in conversation with like prolapse right it's like don't lift over 20 pounds like we can't have 
these limitations. We got to give them some much larger parameters to work with to know yeah. that. Yeah, exactly. So talk to me a little bit about in your experience working with so many different bodies, what can timeline ranges look like for healing and improvement? Sure. Well, what we are talking about specifically is changes in abdominal wall tissue. Mm-hmm. So what we have there are muscles and we have fascia and connective tissue. So when we're talking about muscles, we kind of know that after, well, I wouldn't even say a few weeks, because if we work with muscles for a few weeks, the changes we see there would be primarily sort of motor learning, mm-hmm. sort of neurological changes, but physical changes could take place after a few months. So when we're dealing with muscle tissues of the abdominal wall, it's no different. We may see some physical changes after a few months of working with the muscles, but muscles are only part of the picture and connective tissue is the other piece of it. Mm-hmm. And that's where things get a little confusing for some people because we're, they're not necessarily used to working with connective tissue as a, as a goal, as a goal to change or to produce some adaptation. In. But it's the same for tendons. And for ligaments, so for tendons, we know that the change takes place, but it takes place over a much longer period of time. So we're talking well over 12 weeks, specifically for fascia. Fascia, the collagen turnover is very, very slow. So now we're talking six months to even 18 months. So when we're looking at the range that you're asking for, it could be anywhere from a few months, if we're just looking at muscles, up to 18 months and beyond, if we're looking at the whole system that involves muscles and connective tissue. So we are stopping people maybe at the three-month mark or even six-month mark. I think we would be stopping them prematurely, depending on the presentation. If they're really, if it is someone that we are seeing a lot of laxity or fascial laxity and thinning postpartum, then it would likely take them longer. Because the connective tissue piece of it, like I mentioned, it does take longer for that collagen to kind of lay down and then remodel and then just kind of build up. Right. I think that, I mean, we forget, we truly forget that there's a remodeling process that has to happen with any kind of injury, with any kind. And that's like a lot of people don't like framing it that way, but I think it just helps us to manage expectations for something we're like told, oh, well, you're cleared at six weeks. My body is like, healthy and ready and good to go. But really, you know, like that tissue is just so fragile for that first year postpartum. And I just tell people like, you're not fragile, but you're also not invincible. You have to understand like your body's just not normal, right? Now. Like your tissues yeah. are not your, it's not a normal homeostasis for you. You will create a new one. But right now this is, it, things are just different. And if you have nursing and just hormonal changes, sleep, like you said, nutrition, all of these things holistically affect healing and that timeline and what that looks like. And you can do everything right and still have a body that just takes a lot of time to find its new homeostasis. Mm-hmm. And healing is so subjective. <laughs> yes, yes. So let's talk a little bit about that. Because healing is subjective, what are some indicators, what are some benchmarks, is maybe a better word, for somebody to find peace? Whether that's peace with my body is now as healed as it's probably going to be. This is my new normal. I'm, I'm done with like rehab. This is my body now or at peace with, I think surgery is my next best choice. 
what are some of those benchmarks for kind of figuring out what healed means to them? So really hard. This is a huge, yeah, well, this is a huge question and it's a loaded topic. And because my mind is going all over the place right now with it. But what I think it's maybe good to start with here is that the fact that you asked that question, it means that what we're trying to do is we are trying to individualize it. Mm-hmm. We are trying to figure out what does it mean for that person to have diastasis. Right. And because I think the benchmarks are going to be different from person to person. And so there was a study that was a really great qualitative study interviewing 19 individuals with diastasis. And through that, they actually came up with four main themes that I guess, of concern for individuals that have diastasis. One of them was around how the body is, the change in the body's function and its ability. One of them was the change in its appearance. It doesn't look like it used to. One of them was the change or not the change, but not being understood by people around them, their environment. And that can include healthcare practitioners that can include their friends and family or strangers, anything, anyone and anything in their environment. And the last is not really understanding the treatment, what to do for it. So when we're looking at these four things, the change in how the body functions, I think what we have to do before we even go into these specifics is kind of ask the person, what does it mean to them to have it? And if we're not sure how to phrase these questions, I think these themes can help with that because we could kind of come up with a checklist of our own of questions to ask before we start working with them and kind of check in with them along the way regarding how do you feel your body is different right now? How do you feel your diastasis is affecting you? It could be as simple as, well, I'm hesitant to do certain exercises I'm avoiding certain exercises. I don't want to do this because I may, I don't want to make things worse. So a benchmark in that case would be something like working with them to do certain exercises, educating them around them and just building up their confidence by doing more and more and more. And then whatever they wanted to achieve that they were avoiding. And once they've achieved that, that's their benchmark. That could be one of them. Or if it, although diastasis is not usually something we associate with pain. It's certainly something that is coming up more and more is that some people do experience different sensations. Yeah, It could be a sense of just being unstable in their core, a sense of being wobbly. It could be a sense of pressure in their stomach. It could be pain. It could be low back pain. It could be areas of pain that show up when doing exercises. Yeah. So targeting those things and those individually could all be benchmarks for that person. Another thing regarding appearance, like you were saying, when should we look go for surgery? How do I know if I've reached my plateau? Well, if we have that range of up to 18 months, we know that's kind of how long things take to change. Right. Well, have you reached where you want to be by 18 months or are you not happy with where you're at? So that could be a benchmark as well. And so it just comes down to individualizing it and making benchmarks specific to the person that's in front of you. We can't really say that a benchmark is 
you are now healed when your gap is closed. Right. Because that is just not what we're seeing in research. Right. Or, so, or in like real life. Like that's in real life. Which we finally have research to back up. So it's really exciting in this period of time to finally be able to say, while it will also be very confusing, I will put a little <laughs> asterisk there and we can always dive into this if you want to, but we actually have in the most recent systematic review for diastasis and the effect of abdominal or pelvic floor or a combination of training on the effect of interrecti distance, a systematic review that included 16 randomized control trials. They were able to pool some of the data from some of these trials if the groups of people were the same and similar. If everything was different, they can't pull that data together. But they were able to pull together six of these randomized control trial participants. And they found that actually when they do some kind of strengthening program, we actually don't see that there is a significant change in that interrecti distance. And so A, that could be like, wait a second, what are we doing then? Then maybe what we're doing isn't working we should stop, or you could go down that path. But at the same time, you have to keep in mind that as people are working on building up their strength and their abdominal wall, they actually start feeling better, feeling stronger, able to do more. So there are subjective changes and other objective changes that happen as well that just aren't being captured because all we are looking at is this change in interrecti distance that really isn't changing too much. Yet we've put so much emphasis on that. And it's not that what we're doing isn't working. It's that what we're doing is changing so many other things that we're just not looking at because we are looking only in one direction. Right. We're missing the bigger picture, all the stuff that we were talking about before. So when we look at the bigger picture, all of that stuff is happening. But what we do see is that there is a change in distortion. Mm -hmm. Distortion meaning how much slack is in that linear alba. How taut does it feel? Does it feel kind of loose and relaxed and soft? Or does it feel taut? And we're seeing there's a change in that, not so much in interrecti distance. So we, we have to shift what we're looking at and assessing and measuring towards distortion, towards tension, towards depth these sorts of things rather than interrecti distance. Now that's going to confuse a lot of people again, because it's brand new stuff that's being just published right now. And I think it's our job now collectively to be able to explain that to the very confused mom that's coming to us asking, well, why isn't this changing? Or when you go in and you measure every so often and you're noticing it's not changing for you to be able to just rest knowing that it's fine, it's right. normal, and that everything else might be changing around it. I think that's, I mean, it's so important to say, it's like, it's not just to break that down. I mean, it's not just about how far separate it is. It's about what that tissue feels like, how that tissue's performs, like how much it sinks in, how much it's responsive under load, under challenge. Like there's just a lot of different variables. It's depth, it's width, it's all these different things. It's a holistic healing process. So it's not just about the approximation. We're working with your whole body to help create a more responsive core as like a whole, basically. Even if it's still separated, even if your tissue isn't that great, 
right? Like that doesn't mean your core is weak. That doesn't mean that you're broken. That doesn't mean that you can't do a lot of high level athletic stuff. Like all of this again exists on a spectrum, but it's just understanding that there's so much hope. Even if you have a diastasis, even if it's a large diastasis, you can still do so much. And the biggest problem is a lot of the limiting beliefs that we've created around diastasis and how that's infiltrated the fitness industry, the practitioner community, like, you know, across the board is your average mom being so confused and afraid of her abs. But I think it's just empowering people to know, like, there's a lot of different things at play here. It's not just about the distance separated, but there's a lot that we can do. And you are not limited. You're not fragile. You're just also not invincible, which honestly, every athlete needs to hear that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Seriously. Oh man. That's so insightful. So to try to, so surgery. <laughs> I know, to throw that in there. Oh, no, but, no, but it's it's so important. And I do love, like, how awesome is it that we're finally getting research on this? Finally, you know? right? So here's the thing. I also know that this reconceptualization of what's important and maybe what's not so important mm-hmm. when working with someone who is postpartum, it is possible. In the, it's even in the world of diastasis, I know we can change the way we are we we see it collectively as a whole as the world sees it. Because in 2016, when Diane Lee and Paul Hodges released their paradigm shifting study, talking about this thing called distortion, talking about tension, slack in the linea alba, etc., with the one study created a sort of movement, a global shift in what we now constitute as an important assessment measure, tension. Mm -hmm. Before this study, we had nothing, we were not talking about tension, we weren't looking for it. And so with one study came a massive global shift, little by little, which then there was probably a, we reached a, what's the term? When there's like enough people doing the same thing, it's like like a consensus. Consensus, but it's like a turning point, you know, like yeah. it just it shifts into okay, now there's so many of us, it's just now become a thing. So there was a huge shift in going from interrecti distance in what we're measuring to now measuring assessment. All of this changed because of one study. And now we've got something that's likely going to create the same kind of effect that we saw from the 2016 study, where now this very recent systematic review is kind of stating interact distance really should not be the primary goal. Reducing it should not be the primary goal because in fact, what we do may or may not change it. It generally hasn't been shown to change that much clinically, maybe like 0.29 centimeters, which is not that much. And so we need to focus on other things because all these things are changing. And so there will be a shift that I believe is going to happen and that it can happen. And once it does, it will be so much better, I believe, once people understand what they're working with. And I actually think right now the goal of reducing interact by distance is leading to much more confusion in the people that we're working with and in the industry in general. And so when that is sort of removed from the picture, it becomes a bit more clear cut, actually, in what I see it. Yeah, just kind of shifting the focus around. And I think that'll be really positive, again, to kind of connect all the different holistic dots that we've talked about. Yeah. Well, Manira, thank you. 
This was super insightful and in-depth. I think it's going to really benefit coaches, practitioners, and just anyone listening to this through the podcast. It is complicated, yes. And we've made a lot of progress in using exercise as a tool to make it less complicated. I think that's a significant part of the work I do, the work that you do, is just making a lot of these higher level concepts a lot more relatable and a way for people to actually put this into their real life, their their yeah. exercises, the kind of training that they want to do and see the progress that they want to see. So thank you so much for sharing your time. Where can people learn more about you and the work that you do? Oh, yes, absolutely. So the best place that they can come learn more about me is through my Instagram page at PT. There you will see only information on diastasis and you'll also see a link to my other very passionate project. It is Tummy Tuck Rehab with co-founder Lisa Marie Ryan, who many of you may also already know. And we are working to really provide quality resources, be a source of quality resources for individuals undergoing the tummy tuck surgery. Because when you think of a lack of information, quality information for diastasis, it's actually, there's actually nothing for anyone going through the surgery, as you also know. Yeah, I am so grateful for the work that you and Lisa are doing with that. So if you're listening, you find yourself considering an abdominal plastic or tummy tuck, um, or you just don't know, you know, what that process is like. They have so many incredible resources that help guide that process so that you can feel like you're making a really informed choice versus a choice out of fear or just the variety of things that we are told by doctors or different opinions. There's lots of opinions. So you guys do a really great job of making it less complicated and just a lot more empowering. So thank you for the work that you do, for the work you've been doing. You've really, honestly, you've changed the industry in such a positive way. And I'm so grateful that we're, you know, like growing up together in this stuff. <laughs> and it's awesome. Yes, so we you. are. <laughs> All right. Well, have a great rest of your day. Thank you again. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Practice Brave podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review and help us spread the work we are doing to improve the overall information and messaging in the fitness industry and beyond. Now, if you are pregnant and you are looking for a trustworthy exercise program to follow, I have you covered. The Pregnant Athlete Training Program is a well-rounded program for pregnancy with workouts for each week that are appropriate for your changing body. That's 36 weeks of workouts, three to four workouts each week, and tons of guidance on exercise strategy. We also have an at-home version of that program. If you are postpartum and you're looking for an exercise program to follow, the eight-week postpartum athlete training program would be a really great way to help bridge the gap between rehab and the fitness you actually want to do. From there, we have the Practice Brave Fitness Program, which is an ongoing strength conditioning program where you get new workouts each week and have a lot of guidance from myself and my co-coach, Heather Osby. This is the only way that I'm really offering ongoing coaching at this point in time. If you have ever considered becoming a certified pregnancy and postpartum athleticism coach, I would love to have you join us. Pregnancy and postpartum athleticism is a self-paced online certification course that will up-level your coaching skills and help connect the dots between pelvic health and long-term athletic performance, especially during pregnancy and postpartum. Become who you needed and become who your online and local community needs by becoming a certified 
pregnancy and postpartum athleticism coach. Thank you again for listening to the Practice Brave podcast. I appreciate you. And please help me continue spreading this messaging, this information, and this work. Thank you.